Future Generation acknowledges the traditional owners of the country throughout Australia and recognises their continuing connection to lands, waters and communities. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Finding companies to invest in is the core of what we do and fund managers ultimately live and die by the quality and efficacy of, of their ideas. Hello and welcome to Take Stock, a new podcast by Future Generation. In this series, we get a backstage pass into the minds of leading fund managers and how they work and why they make those stock choices. I'm Caroline Gurney, the CEO of Future Generation, Australia's first listed investment companies deliver both social and investment returns. And that's all thanks to the managers who we're going to be talking to. So far, Future Generation has donated more than 65 million to Australian not-for-profits, improving the lives of young Australians. And we're able to do this because of people like Nicholas Markowitz and David Prescott of Lanyon Asset Management. They charge us zero management or performance fees for managing Future Generation's money. Nick's in the studio today. Welcome, Nick. Thanks for having me, Caroline. It's a, it's a pleasure to, to talk to you. So I just want to ask you, what, what's your day job? Uh, so my day job, very simply, is I work for a, a boutique equity investor, and, and my day job is simply to find and invest in companies that we think are undervalued and companies that we think can deliver fantastic results for our investors long term. As CEO of Future Generation, I deal with more than 30 fund managers, all, all unique, best in the business, um, both globally and in Australia. And what I always wonder is, how do you go about selecting a stock? How, how do you do it, Nick? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and so obviously, finding companies to invest in is the core of what we do. And fund managers ultimately live and die by the quality and efficacy of, of their ideas. Um, and so for Lanyon specifically, just taking a step back and at a, at a high level, our goal for our investors is to preserve their capital and deliver strong risk-adjusted returns. And we think the best way to do this is by identifying and then buying what we would call a, a mispriced company. That is where there's a clear gap between the market value of a company, which is the stock price and the underlying value or the underlying fundamental value of the business. Um, you know, when you study finance at university, you get taught that markets are efficient. And I think that's probably true for, for most stocks and most indices in aggregate. But experience tells us that there's often times when severe dislocations in value, that is the, the difference between the stock price and the underlying value of that company can happen. Um, and they happen for lots of different reasons. But Atlantean, we think it's our job to, to find those uh, mispricings of companies and then exploit them for our shareholders. So, you know, taking this a step further, we, we try and find these mispriced businesses, but you know, the additional caveat would be that uh, we try and do this in a, an incredibly low risk way. That is, we try and find businesses where there's a, a risk asymmetry, which is the downside is low if we're wrong. Uh, but the upside is is potentially very high if we're right. And you know, the best analogy I can give, it's the, the heads and tails analogy where heads I win um, and tails I don't lose too much. So oh, I like you know, we're we're trying to do that consistently, but you know, we're not going to be right every single time. We make mistakes like everyone else, but 
you know, ultimately, uh, we think if we can find uh, these stocks, these mispriced stocks consistently, we think if we can build a portfolio of them, of the highest conviction ideas that we have, we think we can do a good job for our investors long term. That I mean, that's really interesting, Nick. So maybe can you talk me through your process using a stock you like as an example? Yeah, sure. So you know, it might be useful for me to use uh, Universal Music Group, which is the fund's largest holding at the moment. Yeah, we're all we're in the business of finding mispriced companies. That is, companies that trade uh, the stock price is well below what we think the inherent value of the company is. Um, and for Universal Music, uh, you know, it's an interesting story how it, it came into the portfolio. But uh, we first started looking at Universal Music when it spun out of Vivendi in late. 2021. Um, and the reason it came onto our radar was that spin-outs have a low and rich history of, of creating value and being fertile places to look for for investments. And yeah, there's a lot of reasons for that. Companies tend to be unknown. They have a limited trading history. There's often forced selling, and sometimes they can be listed in, in obscure markets. And for Universal Music, it actually ticked all those boxes. So you know, for us, immediately when we find a, a business in that bucket, so to speak, uh, we're interested. But beyond the, the company being a spin-out, once we started looking at it, there were, were a number of qualities uh, in the business that led us to think that this could be a, a potentially wonderful investment. So just to maybe run through a few of the things that we loved about the business model, but um, just starting with the assets, um, this, this company has 3 million songs in its catalog. These are non-replicable uh, assets. So they, they own everything from the Beatles, Bob Dylan, Taylor Swift, Ed Sheeran. These are assets or, or songs that are going to be listened to for a number of decades to come. So we have what's called um, a lot of duration in this business. But more than just the asset base itself, what we started to notice or what we liked was that the asset base could potentially be monetized at far greater levels in the future than what it was being monetized at today. And by that, I mean um, Universal Music is distributed through streaming platforms like Spotify. Spotify is growing subscribers at a healthy rate every single month. The streaming platforms are increasing their uh, pricing of their subscriptions, which I'm sure everyone is noticing. But also, there's new revenue streams from a lot of the social media apps like TikTok and, and Spotify who are now licensing music for, for short short form videos. So you put those factors together and it became clear to us at least that you've got a phenomenal asset base, an asset base that can't be replicated by anyone else, but the, the value of that asset base uh, should actually grow in the future. And, and one of the amazing things or the surprising things that came out of our research into universal music was that uh, listeners or um, Spotify subscribers tend to listen to, all of us tend to listen to music from the 15 to 25-year-old period of our lives. And why that's interesting, it means that as uh, Spotify grows its subscribers and, and older and older subscribers join, the value of that catalog actually grows, which is, it's phenomenal. Most Most old assets tend to decay over their lifetime, whereas we have an asset base here that should actually grow in value in the future. So that's what initially uh, attracted us to the assets. But one of the other things to come out of our, our research was just what we would consider to be the, the attractive unit economics of the company. And, and by that, I mean, and I'll give you an example here. 
all of us, I'm guessing all of us on this podcast pay $12 or $13 a month to Spotify. It's how that money gets transferred to Universal Music and trickles down into profit that really gave us a lot of pause for thought about the business. And so just to give you an example, of the $12 or $13 that Spotify charges you every single month, $9 of that gets paid straight away to the uh, the record labels. And it gets proportionally divided amongst the labels based on how much music you listen to and what music you listen to. And Universal Music has almost 50% market share for Western, for Western music and Western markets. So of the... $13 you pay to, to Spotify, $9 goes to the labels. And of that $9, almost $4.50 goes to Universal Music on average. And of that $4.50, the vast majority falls down to their pre-tax profit from which they can do things like buy new catalogs, uh, invest in new artists, or return that capital to shareholders. So yeah, a business model that um, is capable of producing very high margins, but importantly for us, very high incremental margins. So really a fantastic asset. And, and to top it off, it had a great balance sheet and a very prescriptive capital return policy. So, you know, we were interested in Universal Music from the start, but it actually took us around 12 months to buy the asset or buy it, make the first investment. And that's because when we first started looking at the business, it was too expensive. But as events would transpire through 2022, being a, a European listed company after the Ukraine invasion, it sold off dramatically, I think down 50% from peak to trough in, in US dollar terms. And then to top it off, there was some skepticism from the market around, given the high interest rates around highly priced businesses or, or formerly highly priced businesses. So between those two factors, and I guess having confidence in the underlying business, we were able to, to start an investment in that in Universal Music in uh, September, October last year. Thank you, Nick. I mean, that's such a relatable example, um, using universal music to illustrate your process. So thank you. So at any given time, how many stocks are you looking at? So we're typically looking at, you know, I would say on my shortlist today, there's around 30 to 40 companies. And and the reason it's such a, a small amount is uh, at Lanyon, we run small concentrated portfolios. We typically have 15 to 25 businesses that we own. And there's a very simple reason for that. It's because we think that our first 10 ideas are generally better than our last 10 ideas. And the idea of running a 100 stock portfolio makes less sense to us than a 15 to 25 stock portfolio. And, and because of that, that smaller uh, portfolio size, it means we can be really selective about the businesses that we have on our watch list. So typically it's 30 to 40. Sometimes it could be more if there's a lot of opportunities out there. And maybe sometimes it can be only a small number of stocks that we're actively considering if if markets are expensive or, or nothing appeals to us. So, I mean, I think that probably answers the question that I wanted to ask you was how long it actually takes to get one of your you know picks into your portfolio. So I, I presume it varies with each, which each company you're looking at. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I mean, we we love buying different kinds of businesses. So we like buying um I think there's a lot of breadth in the ideas in our portfolio, which is at one bookend, we have listed cash boxes that are, that is companies that trade on relatively low multiples. The, the companies have a very high proportion of their market cap in cash and a very strong capital return policy. And so the, the time taken to analyze and own a company like that is potentially different to say 
a universal music where a lot of the value creation for that business is in the future and higher quality companies like that tend to trade on naturally trade on higher multiples and so for us to own a company like universal music we have to have a deeper understanding of the industry in which it sits in and the drivers of value in that business and so you know if i think about how long it takes to to buy a company it really depends on where we can identify value and I guess the valuation that we're paying and, and what we need to have confidence in to, to make the investment. So I might just follow on, like, how do you know when you're wrong on a stock and how do you decide to exit or to, or to double down? I, I find that really interesting. Like it's, is it a split second decision that you just know, or is it something that you look at over a period of time? The short answer to your question is you're wrong on the stock if the stock price is falling. You know, I used to twist myself into knots justifying why a stock price might be falling when we owned the underlying stock. But, you know, the reality is for our investors, we're trying to preserve their capital. And if their capital is being impaired, then ultimately you're wrong. You know, whether whether you know to, to double the position or increase the position, you know, that is a function of why the stock price is falling. You know, the stock price could simply be falling for any number of reasons, but it could be falling because the stock sits in a geography that is falling in unison. So, you know, for example, again, going back to Universal Music, Universal Music listed in Amsterdam, 90% of its revenues derived from the world in general. But when Ukraine was invaded by Russia, Universal Music fell 50% in US dollar terms alongside the rest of Europe. So, you know, we had a thesis on Universal Music and it fell in sympathy with Europe. But the underlying thesis didn't really change too much, just given 90% of its revenues were US dollar based and derived from around the world. So, you know, so in that sense, um, you know, the decision to add or increase a position is just a function of the stock prices deviated for identifiable reasons and, and we can um, have the confidence to add to our position. But sometimes um, you know, stock prices will fall because there has been a a change in the investment case. Maybe there's been a, a downgrade to company earnings or maybe there's been a change in management or the capital management policy. And then it's up to us to work out what that means for our investment case, whether our investment case still stands, whether it's been diminished somewhat, whether it's incre- uh, improved. And so then it's up to us to, to make that call as to, to what we do with the underlying position. And if you short a stock, do you go through the same process? Short answer is um, you do. Uh, so I, I don't short in my current role, thankfully. We're a long-only fund, but I, I did short in a previous life. And when you're shorting, you've got a all the normal things you would consider about an investment. But I think particularly given how markets have moved over the last and behaved over the last three to five years in particular, when you're shorting a business, you need to be very aware of quarterly earnings. Uh, so you need to have a very strong view on on how earnings expectations are progressing in the market. But you also need to have a view on the narrative of the stock and how that's shifting as well. Um, so shorting requires the same skill set as, as owning a stock, but there's a few more boxes on the checklist that you need to tick off um, before you, you short a stock. And now I want to sort of go to talk more about your process. So what, what was the first stock pick you ever made? Um, do you want to remember it <laughs> and why? 
Are you talking the, the first stock I ever picked in yeah. my entire life or my, yeah. my buy side career? Oh, your buy side career. What? Yeah. Well, I think the, the first stock I owned in my entire life was something probably lame like BHP or ANZ. No disrespect to, to BHP and ANZ owners, but it was a, a reasonably unimaginative uh, investment. But my first buy on um, as a professional investor, I think was actually uh, Caring and Louis Vuitton. Um, this was around seven years ago, I think. Caring, uh, which is the owner of Gucci, um, obviously everyone knows Gucci, the, the luxury fashion label. Gucci had been in the doldrums for a long period of time and they just hired a new creative director. The stock had spiked on that because there was some enthusiasm around what he was doing with the brand and uh, it was up to me to, to work out whether that momentum in the stock or the, the business could continue and whether that was reflected in the, the stock price or not. So. Thankfully, I got off to a good start with my first investment. So that was in, in European luxury goods. But after that, I, I moved on to the automotive industry was my next project after that. And, and that consumed a, a lot of my time. And, and how has your process evolved in the sort of the 13 years? When you first start as a professional investor, a lot of your underpinning and your background is from books you read and you know, for me personally, value investing resonated with me a lot. And, and as a result of that, I went down the path of reading about, you know, Warren Buffett and, and all the great value investors. And, um, you know, I think as a result of that value itself, which historically has been defined as buying companies that are trading on a low price to earnings or a low price to book, that used to occupy a disproportionate amount of my time. Whereas, in recent years, my focus has more shifted to the underlying quality of the business itself. So, you know, I would say that my investment philosophy is all about finding the highest quality business possible at the, the lowest price I can buy it, as opposed to maybe when I first started out being more focused on that, that valuation component. But outside of that, I think, uh, generally speaking, as I've got a bit more experienced and a bit older, I generally prefer more simple investment cases. You know, I like to have a, a really simple idea um, where there's only a, a few things that I need to be right in my thesis for for us to make a lot of money for our investors. You know, I guess the final thing would be, um, and this is as I've become a portfolio manager, but position sizing uh, is an incredibly important thing. And um, you know, I think I've learned over the years that you should let your winners run and, and cut your losers early. Um, so, you know, I think those three things are, are something that I've learned over a period of time and, and what's changed for me um, in recent years. So which investor do you most admire? I think internally at Lanyon, uh, Seth Klarman is is viewed as our, our pin-up investor. And, and that's specifically because he has that uh, investment philosophy of preserving capital and making smart and sensible bets when when there is a very high margin of safety, which is that concept I mentioned at the start, um, a wide gap between the, the stock price and the underlying value. So certainly at Lanyon, Seth Klarman, but I think personally, um, and this is going to be a strange answer because he's not my favorite investor, but um, there's an investor called Joel Greenblatt who wrote a book he wrote two books about investing and, and the crux of it was that 
the best way to beat the market consistently over long periods of time was by buying stocks that are very high quality and have very low valuations. And um, you know, that really stuck with me that that's really the essence of this game is is finding the highest quality business you can at the lowest possible price. So yeah, I think between those two investors, they've certainly been quite influential on me. So finally, are, are good investors born or made? That is a, geez, that's a great question. You know, I think there are, certainly there are, I think there's two aspects to investing. One is the, the technical side, you know, identifying a high quality business, being able to model a company, forecast numbers, talk to management, talk to industry experts, clearly define a thesis, express that thesis. I think those things uh, can be taught. But you know, at the same time, there's a huge art to this, this game. And if I think about the best investors in the world, uh, a lot of them have a, a lot of personality traits that I don't think can be taught. So they're typically very passionate, they're very curious, they're tenacious, they're relentless. Probably the most important thing about them all is they have this independent thinking and a contrarian streak to them. So they make very, very interesting bets um, or investments that a lot of people seem to miss or or don't want to invest in. And you know, our view at Lanyon is that sometimes being a contrarian or investing where companies may be less popular, that's a a potentially incredibly lucrative place to invest. So, you know, I think adding all those factors together, I'm not sure some of them can be taught. I think they're you're born with a lot of those traits. Oh, excellent. Thank you. Have I missed anything? What else do you think is critical that we haven't mentioned? Continuing on from, you know, what traits make a good investor, but you know, I think um personally uh a lot of the investors I think who do quite well tend to be ones that just love love the game, you know, because this can be an incredibly stressful job. It can be, um, you know, there's nothing worse than putting investor capital into a, a stock that uh, maybe doesn't do so well or they have an earnings downgrade and the stock falls. Uh, I think being able to do this job with a smile on your face and do it consistently day in, day out for a number of years, I'm always very, very impressed and um, take my hat off to those investors that can make a 30, 40 year career out of it. Excellent. Thank you so much, Nick. I've really enjoyed talking to you and getting an insight into your investment process. Thank you for your time today and all the work that you and Lanyon do to ensure that future generation you know, can keep on giving. Thanks, Nick. Thank you.